0: There you have it. More chart pound sounds. That is The Smiths with the track titled The Headmaster Ritual from the album Meat Is Murder. This is David Eastall and this is The C-86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Dustin Risker from The Rocket Ship. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Hey Hey Girl.
1: All alone, without a friend call your own, discussing your mind Saying everything's great, everything's fine Hey, hey girl Hey,
0: hey girl There you go, indie pop perfection from the rocket ship with their track titled Hey Hey Girl, which was their debut single, released in 1994, if you're making notes, and hopefully you will be, because I will test you at the end of the show. But um, yes, my special guest this week, all the way from Sacramento, California, is going to be Dustin Resker, who I spoke to a few weeks or months ago. Who knows? Who cares? But anyway, I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your delight, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. I'll probably mention that anyway. But before any more music and chat, I think we should have some admin. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. I probably said that already. If you want to contact me, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. It's always nice to be wanted, but if I'm not, then fair enough. And also, all the shows have been podcasts, so you can hear them on iTunes, Spotify, Mixcloud, Podbean. Yes, all four. So no excuse to um, ignore them if you really want to. There are some classics, by the way, but I might be biased. But um, before we have any more interview chat or any interview at all, I think we should play one more song by The Rocketship. <laughs> There you go. I think we'll fade it there. You get the general gist. Anyway, that's the rocket ship and that's a track titled I Love You Like The Way That I Used To Do. Yes, I did hesitate there. It's a mouthful, but I got there in the end. That's from their album, A Certain Smile, A Certain Sadness. My God, Romantic Melancholia. We love it here on the um, C86 show. And that came out on Slumberland Records back in
1: 1996.
0: Mm-mm. Yes, you did the math, I don't know, 23 years ago. Anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with main man, Dustin Resker, to t- talk about. I um, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, this is when I asked him that important question no, not about when the children were going to have their food, but about the beginning of the band. Dustin, give us the background. We want it. We want it now.
2: Well, coming out of the rose buds um we all went our separate ways i guess and i wanted to change in sound we had been doing you know we had really gotten into shoegazer music um english shoegazer music and um but so i sold but i sold all my guitar pedals and i really wanted to strip it back and i thought i would do um kind of what they call now i think they maybe they still do um slow core i wanted to do you know galaxy 500 kind of music um or low and um you know at that time everything was really guitar heavy but um it was real so it was really exciting when stereo lab started putting out records and you thought oh you could take this guitar music and then add keyboards i think the synthesizers in the 80s um, started to sound really bad, I think, with the, the introduction of the DX7, that Yamaha keyboard, and, you know, we were just all turned off by them. Um, so it was—it seemed really um, brilliant to get the old vintage stuff and incorporate it. And so I bought an old Hammond organ um, that was incredibly heavy and brought it into my apartment and wrote a few songs, you know, with this really slow pace Um, uh, and just recorded on my four track. Yeah. And then had some friends, you know, uh, who were in the Sacramento music scene who were looking to start a band. And so this guy, Robert, uh, came on for drums. And uh, his girlfriend could play keyboards, too, so we had a little um, three-piece. Then they played, we were in the car one time, he he played Felt's record, Let the Snakes Crinkle Their Heads to Death. And the very first song on there um, just blew me away. Um, It's really organ-based. Most of the album, I think, is instrumental. And um, uh, that totally shifted my focus um from that point on i really wanted to to then take this organ and and do more pop have a more of a pop sound and um so that's pretty much how we formed i wrote uh our first seven inch hey hey girl kind of inspired by that felt song
0: yes and also just going back i mean when you were in your teen years were you aware of that kind of post-punk indie scene that was coming from the uk especially you know because we had this dj called john peel that some of us kind of religiously um listened to and and recorded his show and that was the thing that sort of introduced us to the smith and the copto twins and echo and the bunny men and then and then sort of you know everything but the girl and obviously there was felt and and then you know with lawrence and then there was momus um And, you know, then obviously New Order had sort of come out of Joy Division. So I just was wondering if you, you know, what was your sort of, yeah, you know, musical playlist that you had on your trusty TDK C90 cassette?
2: Well, I think in the United States, it was um, all of that music, even the the more mainstream, big um, new wave English bands, that was really pretty obscure music. Um, there was a scene, I think, you know, probably every high school in, in some of the hipper cities, you, you know, on the coasts um, in the U.S., uh, you know, you could f- find yourself hanging out with the, the punks and the New waivers, But um, it was a, just a small click where it seems like it was this was chart music that was on the charts in, in England. But um, so it was really, you know, I got into the just the really big English bands at first. And um, the, so it was the Smiths first album, um, Low Life by New Order, uh, Head on the Door, The Cure around that time. This is it, it, in high school. Yes. Um, Echo and the Bunnymen. In the States here, we had a few compilations, um, songs to learn and sing that were really popular or oh, Depeche Mode, uh, catching up with is I don't know if they even released that in England but it was a compilation of Depeche Mode and so kind of got into um, the more obvious bands um, and you know obviously as well wonderful um, music.
0: Well obviously the bands that sort of also sort of made it quite big and though they started quite I suppose like most of them was like U2 and then Simple Minds who became sort of Juggernauts in the sort of um, the 80s. But obviously, because for me, th- there was that kind of progression sort of from punk, then you had post-punk. And then in the UK, you know, from sort of 83 to 87, there was the sort of the indie scene and that was like the, the years of the Smiths. That was like five years of the Smiths. And then by that period, the 87, 88, you know dance music had suddenly sort of crept in, so we had Primal Scream and the Soup Dragons and Happy Mondays and then, obviously, the Stone Roses, so that, that vibe. But but then, you know, you from sort of Seattle, you know, brought in this grunge, and that kind of knocked a lot of those bands completely out, because I think most bands have a five-year narrative, i sort of come to realise, you know, they have two years making a sound and getting together, then that first single it gets a bit of play, and then the album and then a bit more Torrent. And then they had the Tricky second album. So obviously you came (laughs) along sort of 80, um, 93 period. So, you you know, we were just going from grunge to that world of Britpop. So I just kind of was wondering how you were sort of fitting in, because there were bands, yeah, like you mentioned, um, Galaxy... Five hundred, And then we also had bands like Lush and also Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, who didn't kind of fit into any kind of vibe. And then you had, you know, the kind of more noise band like uh, My Bloody Valentine. So I just wondered how that was kind of whether you were looking, thinking, God, we've, we've missed grunge. What should we do next?
2: <laughs> um well, that was a, it was a big influence. Uh, Nirvana was a big influence on us, but I kind of never liked most of the any of the other grunge bands that mu- much. I mean, I liked, I did like a heavy sound, and obviously, my Blade Valentine could get really heavy. Um, and was, I wasn't, we weren't afraid of distortion and, and dissonance. We were really into Sonic Youth too, yes. when in that re- really relevant period for their releases and. Um, other, you know, American bands like uh, Polvo or the Swirlies were interesting to us. Uh, oh, we liked Swerve Driver from from England too. Um, and, but what really made a, a huge change in my direction in life was in Sacramento, where we lived, um, was a band that. It, Sacramento is, a, is about two hours from San Francisco, so. Uh, traditionally a lot of the artistic talent in Sacramento would, I don't know if they do this now, but um, would go to San Francisco. So it was always taking all the big bands or, you know, all the, the great artists in, in SAC. And even if you were from from Sacramento, you know, in press, you would claim that you were from the Bay Area. But um, but we had a band um, that was getting all kinds of attention in um, on these independent labels, and that band was Tiger Trap, and they put out stuff on K Records up in Olympia, Washington, several states up, and they brought a whole new um, ethic into my uh, purview, which you know I guess I had been into the you know the mainstream alternative rock bands or progressive bands, whatever you want to call it, new wave. Uh, But those were all major labels. And so I got, nonetheless, there's this burgeoning burgeoning indie scene where people were just putting out tape cassettes, uh, putting out seven inches and the like. And um, Tiger Trap was this perfect um, bridge for me into that scene because um, from the really lovely pop that I was into, um, they, where they, uh, she has, she writes great melodies, Rose Melberg writes these wonderful melodies, has a, you know, beautiful voice, but then they're really rough around the edges. It, it just seemed like your friend's band, you know, that just happened to write good songs, you know, un, totally unpre- unpretentious, like grunge music was. And, the, you know, they distorted their guitars and like, but it was just, you know, strummy guitar, yes. um, pop. And so that, um, in, that, in the early 90s, I really um, got deeper into what was happening on the, the underground level in the United States.
0: Right. Let's just leave it there because, um, yes, with a, you can have too much chat sometimes. Well, I don't know. Perhaps you're not. But um, we're going to break it up there. We're going to play some more music and then a bit more of that interview with Dustin from the Rocket Ship. No, not Rocket Ships. I was tempted, though. But anyway, this is another track which is taken from the album a certain smile a certain sadness god that's almost it's almost as good as the it's in material life is hard and then you die title which we used to love but anyway let's not talk about that liverpool band this is going to be i'm lost without you
1: here <laughs> and fantasies wishes and fears come crashing down around me I'm lost without you here
0: It feels a bit cheeky to um, fade it there. You know, someone put all that work into it and I've just faded it down. But anyway, I'm going to make that decision. That is The Rocket Ship and there's a um, track titled I'm Lost Without You Here. This is David Eastall. This is The C-86 Show coming right at you and um, yes I won't give you any more detail like how to contact me because I've already done that and that sounds a bit desperate if you repeat it twice too quickly but um, I will do it before the end of the show but this is going to be the second part of my interview with Dustin from the band where I was talking about most uh, my five year narrative theory about most band who, bands who last for that period of time and uh, I was kind of curious how the rocket ship also their sort of narrative and story and this was Dustin's reply Dustin, what was your narrative with the band?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I was always, as I still am in a way, just thinking about the next songs. And, you know, one of the things that was cool about the DIY indie scene was it was anti-commercial. I mean, you still had to put stuff out on, on labels that are, you know, trying to make some money. But it really eschewed um, like any kind of career Focus careerism with the bands that, that, um, that was really looked down upon, um, being on a major label was really looked down upon. And, uh, there was a kind of, uh, a, 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 ethic of just doing it for the art. I mean, yes. I think, um, we I was naive, or probably all of us were you know that it's that's of course easy to do um when you have no responsibilities. you know you just work at a coffee shop in your early twenties and you're not trying to um establish a career you're not thinking about the future very much, and I guess we we kind of did that um uh, well it was, you know, it, yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean it was kind of interesting because you mentioned K Records and I did an interview with Calvin. A few months ago And obviously he, he'd he become such a cult star And in this country, you know, obviously Especially in the 80s Being on the indie label was so important and I can remember when Sonic Youth uh, Signed to Geffen from, I think, S S T Records And it was like, you know, the music papers And went into some sort of meltdown and frenzy Thinking, you know, can, <coughs> can this be right, you know And then you felt so, you know When, I don't know, people like Steve Albini You know, I think when he produced one of those uh, nirvana albums the, uh, the the follow-up to never never mind you know he only took a fee didn't he He didn't want to take a percentage because that would have that would have probably meant that he would have become a millionaire and that would have been somehow sort of knocked out his kind of principles so so people during that time did sort of they were so uptight and angsty weren't they
2: yeah, but principled, I think, you know, and it's, it's, I wish we had a little bit more of that now. I mean, obviously the, the this, this, uh, landscape of the industry has changed drastically with, cause everything's digital now. Um, but I, you know, uh, kind of relish those days because it was trying to, um, I, it was, um, you know, there was a, this critique of, of corporate capitalism that went with it that seems as relevant today as it did then. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think there was, um, it, could, it could be kind of uptight. <laughs> Just a bit.
0: Well, you know, I was a Smiths fan. My God, we were so uptight. But, um, <laughs> but also, you know, because your first two albums came out quite close to each other. So was at this time, was the band a full-time project?
2: Pretty much. I mean, I always had a day job, but uh, that was the only thing I was focusing on. I didn't have children or yard work to do. Yes. Back then.
0: And then sort of, obviously, you sort of came out, you know, you came, you know, in 99, you had a Garden of Delight. So when you were recording that, did that also sort of come together quite straightforwardly? You know, because often at that stage, you know, people are starting to sort of come and go from bands and dynamics start to change.
2: Yeah, well, um, Rocket ship was always, uh, you know, when we finally got the four piece together with Jim, you know, uh, the other drummer, Robert, had left, and um, we took on Verna Brock uh, on bass. Nonetheless, it's functioned the way that it still functions today, which is essentially I write all, all of the parts. And um, it's always just been a, a project um, to where I can... Create and produce music, um, and it's never been collaborative, really. Um, and so, Garden of Delights. Uh, I had moved away from Sacramento into uh, into a very small college town with my girlfriend at the time, Nellie Wheeland, and um, I was just really into tape. Uh, uh, hadn't gotten into computers yet, and I was. Didn't really know. I actually didn't know Brian Eno's work at all, but um, I guess I was really influenced by those uh, interludes, psychedelic interludes on *Loveless* and some of the stuff that uh, *My Bloody Valentine* was doing. You know, one of the cool things about Shoegaze music was um, that it was really psychedelic, and so I uh, I thought, well, what couldn't you do those interlude things for a whole album? And so that was more or less. just me in the studio.
0: Yes. And then, and, and then as we turn the uh, millennium 2000, <laughs> seems a long time ago now. Um, yes, <laughs> the millennium bug. Yes, what happened there? <laughs> um, yes, then there was that. Then, then the band went, what happened to the band after that? Because there was a huge gap, isn't there now? There's a massive gap. I mean, you could drive a bus through it between that album and, and, the, and the next released. Here comes Rocket Ship.
2: In 2006, yeah. Yes. Well, when I moved up to Arcata, I really, um, I guess in some ways I was ambivalent about the band um, or about recording music. I was much more interested in our in the um, political activist scene in this college town. And so through m- myself behind that, when I wasn't working, I was m- more interested in um protecting the old growth forests in that area or whatever our issue was, getting more bike lanes or um, food not bombs was a thing that we were involved in. We would serve lunch in the parks every night for homeless people or whoever actually wanted to show up. And um, so I didn't I wasn't focusing so much on the, the music. At that period, and as well uh, my old eight track finally uh, you couldn't replace the heads on it anymore, and my dad bought me a computer um, and so I started to delve into the world of computer recording as well as maintaining a computer and I, you know I've spent hundreds of hours just being a tech on these on this, these machines that, have problems all the time. Um, especially when you're trying to set it up and record high quality audio. So I ha- had to go through a whole new learning process and all the gear and getting preamps and outboard stuff for computers. And, um, it just took a while. I mean, I think I, it, to a fault, I never really thought, never made a, a plan or had any kind of ambition in in a way for the for the band um, on like what would what would be smart you know like you put out an album and then you tour and then you go in again and you do that process over like I had no idea how you would go about um, being successful as and um, from the career aspect it was just always a, um, about the songs mm-hmm. when I could get around to them you know.
0: Indeed, that's the second part of my interview with Dustin Resca from The Rocket Ship talking about life in the band and much, much more. Anyway, look, I'm going to break that up into another, um, uh, yes, musical interlude. This is going to be a track not taken from the album that I just keep playing all the songs from. This is going to be Your New Boyfriend. God, they sound so like Sarah Records at times.
1: My side. Still I lose myself
0: is the rocket ship and that was a track titled your new boyfriend. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. If you want to contact me, yes, I do sound desperate now, but uh, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 show. I will be there. And as I said, um, all the shows have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, which we love, and mixed cloud, which we also love. Anyway, this is going to be the third or fourth part of my interview with Dustin. I wish I was paying attention, um, where I had been talking about sort of the the sort of musical industry or the music business, as we like to call it, um, and man- managing to sort of keep it going. And most bands don't because it's kind of tricky, and also you get quite ripped off as well. But um, yes, that was my point that I was making, and this was Dustin's dustin's uh, reply dustin take it away
2: i mean i think you know most bands don't make very much money if at all they can't support themselves on it and um so yeah, yeah maybe any form when you're in in school or at college and um, then you get into your mid-20s and everyone has a partners and you're starting to You know, you've been on tour, and I mean, I hate touring, and I think other people realize that too. If you're going to make money, you're you're going to be on the road all the time. There's all these bands uh, today as well who um, just have to keep booking shows um, all the time. And if you know that's maybe maybe you didn't want to do that, maybe you just wanted to write cool songs. But I think it's a really it's a super competitive industry. It's oversaturated with lots of great bands i mean there's just there's phenomenal numbers of of wonderful music being made um and but to come up with those thousands of dollars that you need every month to pay the bills to live in one of these major cities now it's just it's not going to happen in your band probably and so i think that's why a lot of people give up you know and it's also why bands like sonic youth or nirvana signed to major labels because that traditionally has been the only way that you could really make a lot of money yeah or you know even make a living you know?
0: well i think what i sort of realize is you can make a bit of money when you're happening you know when you've got the album coming out and you do the tour even though you sometimes then end up in the, the minus but you know there is money happening but when you stop you know that's you know it's a bit like stopping a job you know you you know, there's no money anymore. So I think that's when people get a bit freaked out and don't kind of realise what what the kind of the, the career is, if, if one wants to call it a career with music. So I think people like Lemmy from Motorhead just did, you know, like, I've got to do an album every 18 months, tour it for a year. Then back and do another album, and then tour it. You know, and there was just no break because because he probably realised that's you know you just got to keep the money coming and going and keep I suppose you call it cash flow, don't you? Really. So when you when you sort of after the, you know just to get an idea of that narrative. So when you'd done sort of Garden Garden of um, Delights, and then the next album here comes. Um, rocket ship did was it the case that the band was just kind of put to one side until you thought actually i've got some songs i'm i'm i, I think we could you should get back in the studio game
2: yeah well it's always it's really time consuming as well uh recording everything myself and so you know the first album i it was easier to track because i the, the these musicians played their parts um and but since that time, I do all of it. I bring other musicians in, um, especially singers and drummers and and things I'm not really good at playing, but um, super time consuming um, to track everything singly. And and then, I mean, I've definitely broken out of it now. Um, At the time, I really wanted to indulge myself in any idea that I had you know, why couldn't I take the song this or wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, do a fake orchestra sound here or, you know, um, so uh, lyrics, lyrics, um, take a while for me to write. Um, it takes me a while to find something I like, but, um, in, I mean, I think in some ways I just, um, I mean, I might be lazy, you know, when it comes to, to recording or historically have been so, I just, um. There's a, I have perfectionist tendencies, which slow everything down, To mm. As well, you know, I had kids in the last decade as well, so there's a lot of emphasis on the children, raising them.
0: Yes. The so do, does that mean that, um, because at the moment I did my massive research and looking on, on Wikipedia, it says that the, the current members are Dusty and Ellen. So does that mean that the band is still kind of just buzzing not buzzing ticking over in the corner
2: um no well i'm uh, i'm not i'm not familiar with that phrase so
0: (laughs) no i just wondered if you know because some people say that's it we'll never ever brief you know we'll never that band will never happen again so i just wondered if you were still thinking well there is still in the next probably five years the chance of another album coming out
2: Oh, I'm, well, I'm glad you asked. No, it's uh, the new album's being mixed right now in Los Angeles.
0: Blimey, yeah. that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's uh, 10 songs. And um, I just signed a record deal with Darla down in San Diego and, and Hawaii um, for three records and two EPs. Okay. So it's, and so we're already a- working on the follow-up to this one that's about to come out this year.
0: Blimey, because I just did an interview with a guy called Fred, who was the uh, bass player for The Throw Muses and Belly for you know quite a short time. And he's currently, oh. bizarrely, he's been touring with uh, Kristen Hirsch in the UK throughout March without a, date, a day off, really. And he's, you know, after playing music in that period in you know, the 90s, just hasn't done it. And then he's just kind of got to solo EPs out and has just found his creative music again which is kind of in his 50s so obviously he's he's kind of feeling kind of because he really said that he you know the music business just kind of made him really fed up and much more the, you know so so it's yeah. kind of uh interesting so you've you're sort of after that kind of period of of sort of um that last the last album that you did here comes rocket ship you you know it's kind of all systems go again
2: it is, and you know, I've put out a lot of singles and one-offs since that time. I mean, certainly a couple albums worth of covers, or you know, um, some ambient songs, instrumentals, um, sa- soundtrack work as well yeah. here and there. Um, but yeah, as far as a proper release, yeah, there's there's this coming along, and I think um, I think it's partially due to being in middle age or beyond middle age now. Um, I feel uh, the pressing of time. I don't have infinite time. Certainly, that's the only thing I'm really certain about, and um, uh, it's kind of all, the only thing I've ever been good at. And I think I have. I'm uh, in a. I think I'm going to be doing. People always say this, right, when they're <laughs> writing pop records in their fifties. But I think it's going to be the, the, some of the best work I have. I think I have a lot of ideas and lot to bring. Um, and contribute to these these records, and um, I'm terribly excited and motivated, and I'm working on it constantly.
0: Yes, well, it's interesting because you mentioned Lawrence at the beginning, and and I did an interview with him probably last year. It's all a bit of a blur now, but he did say to mention that he um, couldn't understand why. Unlike other professions, like being a carpenter, plumber, etc., you know, you should get better with time. And so he was saying that he found it a bit strange that people's songwriting didn't get better with time because you think, well, sure it did. But you have that kind of youthful, enthusiastic arrogance being a bit messed up probably on various other chemicals that sometimes people write those classics in, in the teen and early 20s and then suddenly it doesn't quite happen again. Though, you know, I have to say David Bowie's kind of last album wasn't, you know, a masterpiece, really. But but it's interesting that you you also feel that you've, you know, you've still got the best work still to come.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think um, for I personally, uh, beyond just music, have developed so much since my 20s. And, you know, there's I I think because of the commercial uh, aspects of um or the integration of the art with commerce people can often get stuck with playing the same kind of music over and over again they feel like they have to to uh replicate it or to be relevant you know like lemmy isn't going to you know hire an orchestra suddenly and (laughs) and go go that route, you know, try out all these different ideas. I mean, it could be that's not what people want from his band. And he's kind of stuck there. Um, perhaps. Yes. Um, so, but I so, but I think that that's just um, those kinds of pressures, if you can keep away from them. I and mean, I think, in the, again, in the independent scene, you can if uh, you that one should really just uh, should have an ethic of, of trying to develop and push it. I mean, for me, I love I still love simple pop songs with simple structures and chords but there has to be it can't just be that you know I, I think um, it then if it's just simple chords the melody's got to be greater cool in, um, arrangement or the production is somehow um, interesting to me because you know most of the time it's you've, I've already heard it at this point you know um, especially when in this postmodern era where people, you know, the bands, a lot of the bands that are tw- in their 20s now, certainly in, in Portland and I think elsewhere, you know, are discovering this stuff from the 90s. And so they, there's a shoegaze scene. And that's and cool because I liked that kind of music. But, you know, a lot of them sound like the bands that were around in the, in the 90s already. And um, so how... I'm looking for things that are going to be interesting to me and that are fresh and new to me, and so hope to make that music myself. Yeah,
0: well, but it's interesting because uh, Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales, who was still going, I mean, he did a tour recently in a new album, and he was only going to play new material. He. W- You know, and so people were going to turn up and he knew that they'd want to hear those classics from 30 years, 20 years ago, but he's like, I'm not going to do it because the band is still relevant. I think those bands... Certain bands, you know, it's a bit of a different gig, you know, with, with people like the Rolling Stones, is that, you know, there's, there's something a bit more around them, whereas actually a smaller band can have that kind of, well, actually, this is going to be my new album. And David Bowie was the same when he did his albums. You know, he he was so brave in the sense that, you know, I'm not going to keep giving you Ziggy Stardust and Hunky Dory. I want to try something different. So as an artist, you know, you have to take that kind of jump. And obviously, you know, you do, you know, he did an album like Low and at the time realised it was comm- suicide, but then now everyone looks at it as a masterpiece and thinks, "Yes, I loved it, and you, you know <laughs> you know they lied, but you know, and they have to rewrite history and think, Oh no, did I really say it was rubbish? Oh dear, no, it was great um so yes, it is interesting, it is good, but it sounds good, so look, the album, when is it coming out?
2: I think it'll be uh realistically where it needs, needs to be mastered and off to the plant, so would. I think probably, uh, hopefully, end of summer or early fall.
0: September. We're looking at September, aren't we? Have you got an album? Have you got a title for it?
2: Yeah, it's called Thanks to You.
0: Thanks to You. Excellent. This is very exciting. And this is on a label called Dala Records?
2: Yeah. I think their main uh, his main business is Record Distribution.
0: Yeah. There's probably more money in that, isn't there? And so, look, last question. What would you say to your an 18 year old self you know a person you know the the key points that you were thinking god that's that's something that i've learned with age wisdom experience the ups and downs you know those things that you know you think yeah that that would have been a good thing to have known when i was
2: 18 i think that i uh, i would have been, i would encourage my 18 year old self to uh to make more music to, that my original focus, my, my, the drive I had to uh, be in a band that I should have, uh, you know, to, to really, to work at it, I suppose, you know, um, I mean, I don't regret, uh, other, a lot of the choices I've made and they were necessary at the time. I think, um, we all have our issues and things to process, I think, when you look back on your youth. Um, but I certainly did. And um, but, yeah, I regret um, I regret uh, wasting so much time. So I, I guess I would have tried to encourage I'd encourage myself to um, dig in a little more.
0: Indeed. Wise words. Indeed. That is also the last part of my interview with dustin resker from the rocket ship all the way from sacramento with a new m- new material coming out in the fall that's autumn for those in the uk anyway a huge thank you for giving me the time for that um between trying to find feed your children which um, obviously we juggled it and we did it so well but anyway that is the end of the show thank you ever so much for listening this has been david eastor indeed it's a true story it's not my fault blame my mum she named me um but i'll leave you with another track from the band i tell you if you like the rocket ship fill your boots they really do rock but um this is going to be butterfly have a great week stay tuned because i'll have a special guest for next week as always anyway take it away